Luke chapter 1, verse 26 through 35, verse 38. The angel Gabriel meets the Virgin Mary. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and we be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child will be born, will be called Holy, the Son of God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. The word of the Lord. Have you ever noticed how sometimes you can be so close to something that you can't really see it? For instance, let me uh, show you a picture. Uh, what is this? Looks like a little white gravel trail on a hillside. But if we zoom out a little bit, um, now what do we see? Well, it looks like the trail intersects with a little loop and there's a white dot in the middle, but what is it? It just looks like some random trails but if we get up in the air, all of a sudden we can see the big picture. It's not a series of random trails, it's a horse. Actually, it's what's known as a geoglyph, which is a design on the ground that can only be seen from far away. This particular one is called the Uffington White Horse. But sometimes we can be so close to something that we can't really see it. For many of us, Christianity is like that, especially the Christmas story baby Jesus in a manger, angels in the field, or this story that Joel just read, an angel announcing the virgin birth to Mary. You know, we can be so close to something, we don't see it. So for instance, maybe you grew up going to church, but you've rejected Christianity. Or maybe you've never gone to church, but to you the gospel appears at best irrelevant or at worst harmful and oppressive. But if either of those describes you, um, I want to invite you to consider the possibility, is it possible that, that maybe you've rejected the gospel, but the gospel you've rejected isn't really the gospel? In other words, that maybe you have bits and pieces, but not the whole picture, because we live in a world that's so close to it, we can't see it? Or maybe you've always gone to church, and you've always considered yourself a good Christian, but the same danger exists for you because we can be so familiar with the gospel that we don't see it 
anymore. So for all of us, therefore, one of the biggest challenges, especially at Christmas, is to get far enough back from the gospel to see it for what it really is. But if we do that, one of the things we find out is that the gospel is far more shocking and challenging, but also comforting and transformative than we ever imagined. Why? Well, let's stand back and briefly see three things in this story we just read uh, that show us um, something about the gospel. We're going to see there's a shocking challenge, there's a disturbing comfort, and lastly, there's a subversive fulfillment. So first, there's a shocking challenge in this story. Um, This angel tells Mary she's going to have a child, not by a human father, but the Son of God, who's going to be an eternal king, whose kingdom will last forever. And how does Mary respond to this? As modern people, it's easy to think, oh, you know, ancient people, they were so gullible and irrational, they would believe anything. But not only is that culturally snobbish to say, this story shows us the exact opposite. When the angel says, you're going to have a child, Mary says, how will this be since I am a virgin? So despite ancient people's lack of, you know, modern science and technology, they knew perfectly well that virgins don't have children. So Mary's got doubts, but um, in Mary's case, she has even greater reason to doubt this than you or me. Why? In the ancient world, ancient Greeks and Romans believed in multiple gods, but they were very finite gods. You could trick them. You could hide from them. The idea that a God like that would become a human was not shocking in the ancient world. Or if you look at Eastern views of reality, like Vedic traditions or Buddhism, God is like an impersonal consciousness that pervades everything, kind of like the force in Star Wars. And so it's not shocking to say that this or that person could be God because everything is God. But for a Jewish person, there is only one God who created all things out of nothing, This God is so holy, they wouldn't even say his name. This God is so transcendent, he has to stoop down on his hands and knees just to get a look at the stars and the galaxies. For a Jewish person, the idea that this God could become a human being was not just shocking, it was unthinkable and blasphemous. So if you, oh modern person, think that you have reasons to doubt the virgin birth, listen, Mary had more reasons to doubt. But Mary's doubt is a special kind of doubt. You may be aware that earlier in this chapter, the same angel, Gabriel, went to an old priest named Zechariah and told him that his aged barren wife, Elizabeth, was going to miraculously give birth to John the Baptist, who was the forerunner of Jesus. And when Zechariah hears this, he says, how shall I know this? Very similar to Mary's question. When Mary asks her question, though, the angel answers her very graciously, but when Zechariah asks his question, the angel says, well, just for that, and he makes Zechariah unable to speak. What's that about? Did Zechariah catch the angel on a grumpy day? He'd been Christmas shopping all afternoon. He'd lost his patience. Is that it? No. The answer is that there are different kinds of doubt. Zechariah has what we might call closed doubt. He's saying, I'm I'm skeptical, and I won't believe it unless you prove it to me. Mary has what we could call open doubt. She's saying, well, I'm struggling with this, but I'm also curious. Could you tell me more? You know, um, if you did grow up to 
going to church. Many of you know that religious people can be very harsh with anybody who asks questions because any sign of doubt, well, that's forbidden. But Mary is showing us a good kind of doubt, a healthy kind of doubt, an open doubt that wants to learn more. What is doubt? It's easy for us to think, well, doubt is the absence of belief. So especially in our modern scientific world, many people say, I don't have beliefs, I have facts. It's this idea that the only way you can really know something is if you can prove it scientifically. But let me ask you a question. Um, If you were to take a car apart and, and lay all the parts on the floor of your garage and say, here's a headlight, here's a fender, here's the engine, have you explained what a car is? Not really. You've described and analyzed the different parts, but that's very different from explaining what a car is. In the same way, friends, we can analyze and and describe our universe scientifically, but that's not the same thing as explaining it. Open doubt is the kind of doubt that's open to the possibility that there's more to be known than we can know by our human resources. Listen, knowledge includes science, but it's bigger than science. So there's a great story in, in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia about uh, some children who sail to a mysterious island and they meet a, um, an old man named Ramandu. And Ramandu tells them that he used to be a star. One of the children, a very modern, scientifically-minded boy named Eustace, says, well, in our world, a star is a huge ball of flaming gas. Ramandu looks at Eustace and says, Even in your world, my son, that is not what a star is, but only what it is made of. Friends, here's the point. Doubt is not the absence of belief. You can never doubt one thing without simultaneously believing something else. Doubt is the inner turbulence we experience between two conflicting beliefs. And so the chalking challenge of the gospel is that it's inviting you to the possibility that there is more to reality than we can subject to our scientific gaze, that there's a holy transcendent God who entered into this world to bring healing and renewal to this world. It says, bring your doubt, but let it be an open kind of doubt that's curious to learn more. Now, if we do that, what happens? Well, that leads to our next point. Uh, The gospel shows us a shocking challenge, but next it shows us a disturbing comfort. If you were to um, look at the first part of this angel's message to Mary, literally what he says is this, grace to you, O receiver of grace, fear not, you have found grace with God. This angel's message is literally dripping with grace. But what is grace? By definition, grace is a gift we don't deserve. But who is this grace coming to? It's coming to Mary, an unwed, teenage Jewish girl. And that's about all we know about her. In fact, the lack of information is significant. Everyone else we meet in this chapter, Elizabeth, Zechariah, Joseph, everybody's, um, we're told what house they belong to. Your house is your family. Everybody in this chapter is identified by their house except for Mary. In that culture, your house was your identity. In a traditional culture, you get an identity from your family and and from the role that's imposed upon you by society and fulfilling that role. So in a traditional culture, the hero is the person who sacrifices their individual desires for the sake of the larger group. And of course, you realize in our modern Western culture, it's the exact opposite. 
In our culture, you don't get an identity from your family or from some social role that is imposed upon you. In our culture, we create our identity for ourselves. So the hero for us is the person who rejects any externally imposed social role and expresses their authentic individual self to the world. You realize what this means. In, in this culture, Mary is a social nobody. She's Jewish, which makes her a racial outsider. She's unmarried, which makes her a social outsider. She's um, poor, which makes her an economic outsider. And she's a woman, which makes her a gender outsider, especially in that culture. In every category, Mary is at the bottom of the social ladder, and yet the grace of God comes to her. Here's the point. Grace utterly demolishes every form of social superiority. So if, you know, what that means is that if you're a somebody in the world's eyes, you can never look down on the so-called nobodies of the world. Now that's a great comfort to a lot of people, but it's also a disturbing comfort because not only does grace destroy social superiority, grace also utterly demolishes every form of moral superiority. If you read the Bible, you'll notice that pretty much everybody in it has some kind of moral failure. Abraham lied about his wife twice. Jacob was a cheat. Samson was a sex addict. And even the great King David was an adulterer and a murderer. Pretty much all of the men, they've got some kind of moral failure in their life. It's easy to say, well, obviously they needed grace. But when you look at a lot of the women, you get a different picture. Especially in that patriarchal culture, the Bible is a very countercultural book because it shows so many women in such a positive light. Women like Deborah or Ruth or Esther read their stories. But of all the people in the Bible, Mary probably has more moral integrity than anybody else, and yet she needs grace. Think about that. You know, it's one thing to see grace coming to social outsiders. We love to see the underdog win. And it's one thing to see grace coming to moral outsiders. We like to feel morally superior and say, oh, well, those people, they obviously needed grace. But it is another thing altogether to see that the, even the very best of us need grace. Just a few verses after this uh, story, Mary calls God her Savior, Mary knows that she has no higher moral ground that she can stand on. She knows that, that the idea, well, there are certain things I would never do. She knows that that idea itself is the kind of pride and superiority that is at the very heart of sin itself. Friends, if someone like Mary can say, I need grace, I need a Savior, what does that say about you and me? I heard an interview once with um, Michelle Alexander. She's a lawyer who wrote a book called The New Jim Crow. It's about the deep injustices that persist in our incarceration system. She said in the interview that sometimes she'll visit large congregations, Christian congregations, and she'll say to the church, we're all sinners. And everybody will nod their heads and say, yes, we're all sinners. And then she'll say, we're all criminals. And that people will look at her bug-eyed and say, wait, what? You're calling me a criminal? It, it's a different way of framing things, but it really gets the point across. Friends, grace not only destroys social superiority, it utterly demolishes every form of moral superiority. Grace is a great comfort if you know you need it, but it, it is profoundly disturbing if you think you don't. 
That means that the only way, unless you're willing to be disturbed by grace, you can never taste the comfort of grace. But if we receive that grace, what does that mean for our lives? Well, that leads to our last point. We've seen the gospel is a shocking challenge. It's also a disturbing comfort. But lastly, the gospel offers us a subversive fulfillment. Through this angel, God is basically saying, Mary, I'm doing something in this world. I'm bringing healing and renewal, and I want to use you to be a part of it. Mary utters those immortal words, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Mary surrenders her life, and she says, God, you can do whatever you want with me. Now think about what that would have meant for her. As we just mentioned, in that culture, the way a woman got an identity was by becoming somebody's wife and giving birth to his children. When Mary says yes to God, she's throwing all of that away. And in our culture, we'd look at that and say something like, well, good for her. The idea that a woman should find her identity in marriage and children, how patriarchal, how oppressive. But our culture would also say that she should find her identity in the things we value Mary, find your racial identity. Embrace your gender identity. Mary, embrace your career as a modern, liberated woman. But you notice Mary doesn't do that either. Mary rejects both the traditional and the modern way of getting an identity. When she takes her hands off of her life and she says, God, you take control of my life. And that's scary. In fact, Jesus himself said that that if anybody wants to follow him, they need to count the cost. But as one of my favorite preachers says, counting the cost does not mean negotiating the price. And yet, that's almost exactly what it looks like for many of us, that when we start exploring faith in Jesus, one of the first things we do is the cost-benefit analysis. We say things like, okay, what do I have to give up? Can I keep this? Can I keep that? Because if I can't keep this or that, then I might have to reconsider my options here. You know what we're doing if we say that? We're not surrendering our conditions. We're simply clarifying our conditions. In fact, we're clarifying what our real God is. Because if we say, unless I have this or that in my life, I can't be truly happy, understand something. If the lack of any earthly good can prevent your ultimate happiness, that earthly good is your ultimate happiness. In fact, it's your real God. And the tragedy is, it will never make you truly happy. It will simply demand more and more from you and give you less and less in return. Not only is that tragic, it's sin. Because the essence of sin is trying to find the ultimate fulfillment of our desires in something, anything other than God. So here's the question. Um, If we give everything to God like Mary did, does that mean abandoning our deepest desires for things like identity, meaning, purpose, love, and happiness? No. It means finding the ultimate fulfillment of those desires in Jesus. How do we do that? Only by seeing that Jesus already gave up everything for us. Think about it. Jesus had the ultimate house. Jesus had the ultimate identity, eternal son of God. There is no identity like that. Jesus had ultimate riches. He had ultimate love. I mean, we're so impressed and starstruck by a little worldly status, but Jesus hung the stars in the sky. He numbered them. He named them. I mean, you know, all the crowns and glories of this world are like dirt to Jesus, and yet Jesus came and became lower than dirt so that he could raise us up to the highest heavens. 
He lived a life of poverty, scorn, disgrace, and rejection. We get so offended by the idea that, you know, we might call ourselves criminals, but Jesus on the cross, he died a death that was reserved for only the worst of criminals. On the cross, Jesus had no conditions. He surrendered all of them. There was no cost-benefit analysis on the cross. Jesus lost everything so that he could give everything to you, so that he could give you an identity, a meaning, a purpose, a love, and a happiness that nothing in this world can touch because it doesn't depend on you. It doesn't depend on what you do. It doesn't depend on what you fail to do. It depends on Jesus and what he already did for you on on the cross. So friends, here's what this means for us. Giving everything to Jesus will never feel like everything if Jesus is everything to you. Is Jesus everything to you? And if not, could he be? Open yourself up to the shocking challenge of the gospel about a holy transcendent God who enters this world to bring healing and renewal. And and receive the disturbing comfort of grace. And if you do that, then give everything to this God. Surrender everything to this God and find the ultimate fulfillment of your deepest desires in Jesus because giving everything to Jesus will never feel like it if Jesus is everything to you. If you're willing, would you pray with me? Father, we praise you for the gift of Christmas, which is the gift of Jesus the shocking challenge of a God who loves this world so much that he would enter into it. Father, I pray that you would open our hearts to the possibility of that reality. Lord, the disturbing comfort of grace, that the only way we can receive it is if we admit that we need it. And Father, finally, the subversive fulfillment that your love is so great and your renewal is so powerful that giving everything to you does not mean the abandonment of our deepest desires but their ultimate fulfillment in jesus would you let all of that come more deeply into our hearts tonight wherever we're at spiritually and um and show us more about who jesus is lord help us to see more truly the big picture of the gospel and let it transform our lives tonight for we pray all of these things in jesus name amen